you're listening to an audio message from Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. For more information, visit our website at harvestgranger.org. Hey, we're uh, in the middle of this series that we've entitled Nailing the Gospel. The purpose of this series is to bring theological precision to how we talk about the gospel. And we're expanding our gospel vocabulary as we provide some definition to some words that are necessary, essential to us understanding what God has given us in the gospel. And um, we are looking at what makes us Protestant. Have you ever wondered what, hey, what's the difference between Protestant and Catholic? Is that a big deal? What is that? And uh, we're looking back into history about 500 years has, at, to the Protestant Reformation. The Reformers brought some protest against some of the teaching and the doctrines that were prominent in that day, still to this day in the Roman Catholic Church. And uh, that essential doctrine that we are wrapping our heads around is that word justification. And we looked at that a couple of weeks ago. We said that is a judicial act of God whereby he declares a guilty sinner righteous in Christ. And so we learned about justification that day. The question is, how are we justified? How do we obtain favor with God? What must I do to be saved? Do I mix a little bit of my good works along with God's grace to me, or is it all of grace? And so that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, We're talking about sola Grazia. We're using those five Latin terms that have come to summarize the teaching of the Reformers, the five solas of Scripture. Last week we looked at sola scriptura, which we learned means that Scripture alone has the authority to define what I believe and to determine how I behave. It's not about some man-made religion or some traditions that men bring to the church. We look at what God has revealed in the pages of Scripture to define what we believe and to determine how we behave. And so, we are learning about these five solas. We are saying this, Scripture alone defines justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Some people say, well, Trent, you're, you're, being, so, you're being so direct and so bold, and it's like you're trying to, to correct all these teachings in the Roman Catholic Church. No, 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 no. I am much more concerned about the bad theology in my church that I am responsible for than I am about the bad theology in anybody else's church. And so we're spending our time getting our theology correct, and we want to nail the gospel, which brings us to this idea of grace alone. And uh, we're going to read the scripture here, and then I'm going to give you three points of summary. We're going to start in one of the most famous verses of the Bible. That's Romans 3, verse 23. Get your eyes on your copy of God's Word. It says this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Do you see that little word all there in verse 23? Just write your name above that, okay? So, for Trent has sinned. Now, if your name's not Trent, don't write my name in your Bible, okay? My name is written in my Bible. You write your name in your Bible. For Trent has sinned and fallen short of the grace and the glory of God. Verse 24, and that's the bad news. Here's the good news. And are justified 
declared legally righteous before God, even though I'm a dirty, rotten sinner. I'm justified how? What are those next three words? By his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Uh, Go over to chapter 5. We're going to spend the rest of our time in chapter 5, beginning in verse 2. It says, through him we also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand. Now, I want you to notice grace is not something that happened decades ago to get me into the family of God. If you are in the family of God by grace, then you stand in the family of God by grace today, forever, continually standing in the grace of God. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Let's let your eyes skip down to verse 12 there. We're gonna read through the rest of the chapter here. Before I read this, everybody look at me. What I'm about to read is some of the deepest theological truth in the Bible. We're diving deep. So everybody needs to take a deep breath lest you drown in the depths of theology right now, okay? So you ready? Everybody take a deep breath. Here we go, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. What was his name? What was his name? Adam. Yeah, remember that in the first couple of pages of your Bible? Remember that guy? Yeah. So sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. little explanation on that. That doesn't mean God wasn't counting sin because it said sin was in the world. God knew there was sin. What it's saying is we weren't doing a very good job of counting our sin. We were kind of ignoring our sin and we just really didn't pay much attention to our sin. So God gave us his law to knock us in the head so that we would be confronted with the fact we sin a lot. That's what the law was given to us to provide an accounting of our sins. And so God gave that through Moses, verse 14, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Everybody underline the word not like in verse 14. Who was a type of the one who was to come, verse 15, the free gift is not like the trespass. Everybody underlines the word not like in verse 15. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace that is that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like, everybody underline the words not like, are you picking up a pattern? not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass through condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Verse 17, for if... 
because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act, everybody underline the words one act in verse 18. I wonder what that's talking about. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass and where sin increased, grace abounded all the more so that as sin reigned in death grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through jesus christ our lord everybody come up for air did you survive that you do okay look at that you can read god's word okay now the question is what in the world does all that mean well, that's my job for the next 30 minutes here. Let me see if I can make some sense of it. Here's the first thing that means. Grace alone releases man from his bondage to sin. Verses 12 through 14 tell us about the tragedy that is the fallenness of man. Our biggest problem is our sin. And when we think about our sin, our biggest problem is not that we sin. Our biggest problem is we enjoy it. We want to. We think this is normal. We think this will bring happiness into our lives. Now notice, it says that we are all guilty of sin in Adam. He anchors our problem not in our behavior. He anchors our problem in our heritage. The problem is, is our great, 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 great granddaddy, Adam, had a sin problem. And we were born through his legacy, and because of our heritage, we are all sinners. Biggest problem is not that we sin. Our biggest problem is we are sinners. We can't help but sin. Our sin is the terminal illness in us that makes us allergic to God. We don't want a God ruling our lives. And so we're bent, we're broken toward our own appetites and our own fallenness, our own brokenness. And there's a gap between God's holiness and our humanity. That's a problem. That's such a problem, it means that we are worthy of death. Now, when we think about death, we think about the cessation of life. Spiritually speaking, death is always the separation between God and man. We can think of life in, uh, life in terms of, of separation, of, of, uh, of breath from what we need, separation from us, from oxygen. Well, it's the same terminal problem. We are separated from God. And so death reigns in us because of our sin. And our sin has so deeply impacted us. Listen, our sin has left us completely 
incapable of knowing God, of being right with God, completely incapable of spending eternity with God. Theologians call this the total depravity of man. It means that we are helpless to have any to do with God. We can't save ourselves. We can't earn it. We can't deserve it. That we are completely incurable apart from the grace of God. Until you understand the depths of your sin, grace will not seem all that amazing to you. Do you understand what I'm saying? Some of you just don't understand what I'm saying. All right? Apart from from God's grace, we have no ability to be made right with God. Now at this point, you should be pushing back on me, pushing back on the scripture. Do you know why? Because there is a pride in the human heart, sin, that wants you to believe that you can fix your own problem that somehow you can contribute to your own salvation. And it usually comes out with this question. What about free will? Don't I have freedom to choose to do whatever I wanna do? Do I have freedom to choose God? I mean, we all have free will, right? We're not robots running around here, right? Is that, do you ever think that? You ever think that? Yeah. Well, listen, theologically speaking, you do have some measure of free will, but also theologically speaking, you have to admit that in some sense, your freedom is limited. Just by logic, you can figure that out. Who has ultimate free will in the universe to do whatever he wants to do? Now, if you just named yourself, you need to repent right now, all right? That's, that's the reason for your marriage problems. It's the reason for your money problems. It's the reason for every problem. If you think you are God, see, that's our problem. We want to believe that we have freedom to do whatever we want to do. So in some sense, the, the, the truth is, yes, God gave one man absolute free will. His name was Adam. And he used that free will to reject God's authority over his life and set himself up as boss of the universe. He essentially said, you ain't the boss of me, I'm gonna exercise my free will. Now the problem is we're all descendants from that guy and we're all infected with his DNA. And so, yeah, your free will is limited. As a matter of fact, most of your free will is kind of an illusion, the fact that you think you have all of that free will. But yeah, I mean, you make choices. You can make a choice with what you're doing with this message, to believe it, to reject it. But when we say we believe that salvation is by grace alone, that doctrine confronts our desire to be free to do whatever we want to do. The doctrine of grace grace alone confronts the pride in man that deceives us into thinking we can contribute or do something to earn our salvation. Listen, when we say we believe that salvation is by grace alone, we're saying we believe that salvation is by God's free will to give grace to those who will believe. You see what we're saying? You say, well, why are you dealing with all this? Because this was the essential truth of the Reformation. You remember how I told you about back in 1517, guy named Martin Luther nailed those 95 theses to the 
church door in Wittenberg there. Well, about seven years after that, there was a guy named Erasmus, a theologian, who pushed back against Luther. And he had some attacks that he had on Luther. And of all the things that he could have attacked Luther on, guess what he attacked Luther on? His understanding of the free will of man. This is what Luther said back to Erasmus when he was attacked. He said this, you alone, Erasmus, in contrast with the others, have attacked the real thing. That is the essential issue. You have not wearied me with the extraneous issues about papacy and purgatory and indulgences and such like trifles. You and you alone have seen the hinge on which all turns. You are attacking the ability of the human will under its bondage to sin. Thank you for not wasting my time. He's saying, Erasmus, you get it. You get what the protest is all about. It either comes down to man's ability to win favor from God through his own free will, or salvation is an exercise in God's free will to, get, to grant grace to rebellious, hard-hearted sinners. And so when we say that we believe grace that grace is, it comes alone. Salvation comes by grace alone. What we're saying is this, the only freedom my will has is to choose which sin it will be enslaved to. Apart from the grace of God, my will will always reject Christ. Apart from the grace of God, I will always choose to enthrone myself as my own savior because my will is in bondage to sin. Through one man's disobedience, the many were made unrighteous. The many were made sinners. And it is an act of God's free will by his good grace that rescues me from the bondage of my will to sin. This is the good news. Grace alone enables hell-bent, Christ-rejecting sinners to choose Christ. If you have chosen Christ, it is an evidence that by God's grace, he has chosen you. If you have any desire to be made right with God at all, do you know what that is? That is the grace of God alone, wooing you and drawing you and enabling you as an act of your will to choose Christ. This is the good news of the gospel, that my security and my salvation is not left up to my ability because on any given day, I could choose not to receive Christ. My receiving of Christ is anchored in the grace of God choosing me. God's grace supplies the grace needed for the forgiveness of sin. God's grace supplies the faith that's necessary for me to believe the gospel. God's grace supplies the desire to repent and believe as evidence of genuine salvation. Jonathan Edwards said this, he said, the only thing that we contribute to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. You believe that? 
Otherwise, somehow you are a co-savior with Christ. It is all of God's grace. And so before I can appreciate God's grace, I have to understand the depths of my bondage to sin. Because of our nature, our nature is to sin. Even the good things that we do is done from an impure motive, self-righteousness. And we need a substitute righteousness to save us by grace. That brings us to point two, it's this. Grace alone supplies God's free gift of salvation. We saw it here in verse 15. It says, but the free gift is not like the trespass. He uses that term like four different times in this passage. What is he saying? We, we know that he's saying God's grace is not like sin. I mean, that's pretty surface, right? But he's saying so much deeper than that. What he's saying is you don't receive the grace of God the way you fell away from the grace of God. What he's saying is the way you fall out of favor with God is not like the way that you gain favor with God. The way that you fall out of favor with God is by sinning. The way that you gain favor with God is by not stop sinning. The way that you fall out of favor with God is by being bad. The way that you gain favor with God is not like being good. It's a different transaction altogether. The way that you fall out of favor with God is by ignoring God. The way that you gain favor with God is not by somehow trying to get God's attention so that he grants grace to you. It is not like that. The way that you fall out of favor with God is by bad works. The way that you gain favor with God is not like doing good works. Why are we saying this? Because the default nature in the human heart is to think, well, I did bad, so I'm going to hell. So if I do good, I'll go to heaven. And Paul, over and over throughout the book of Romans, is like, it is not like that. It is not like that at all. The free gift is not like the trespass. And we've got to drill that into our heads because it's such a part of our fallen human nature to think that we can merit God's favor by being good. We need a better definition of grace. And so let's do some vocabulary here, okay? I got out my Tyndale Bible Dictionary this week and I looked up the word grace and this is what it told me. It says, the gift of God as expressed in his actions of extending mercy loving kindness, and salvation to people. That's grace. Now notice, grace is not something God feels. Grace is actually part of his nature that prompts him to act, to reach, to forgive, to express mercy. He goes on to say this, grace is the dimension of divine activity that enables God to confront human indifference, ignoring God, and rebellion, disobeying God, with inexhaustible capacity to forgive and bless. 
Now notice, that is the very character of our God. He is gracious, and His graciousness leads Him to go on a rescue mission to find sinners in need of grace. Now, the reason why we hammer down on that, again, we're doing some gospel vocabulary, that is a very different understanding of grace than what is taught in Roman Catholicism. How do we know that? Because we can open the Catholic catechism and see what the official teaching is on grace in the Catholic Church. And here it is from the Catholic catechism. That's what it says. Since the initiative belongs to God in the order of grace, no one can merit the initial grace of forgiveness and justification at the beginning of conversion. Amen. That was so good. A plus. Super duper. And what, it, what they're saying is who acts first, God or man? God acts first. He initiates. He's an initiator. That is so good. If they'd only stopped there. It would be so good. We could all be in church together. But it continues. Moved by the Holy Spirit and by charity, we can then merit for ourselves and for others the graces needed for our sanctification, for the increase of grace and charity, and for the attainment of eternal life. Did that just say that we can merit for ourselves and others the attainment of eternal life? That's what it said. And that's not what God said. That ceases to be grace. And that somehow becomes grace and my own works to achieve something that God freely wants to give me anyway. Now, in response to all of these reformed protesters, Luther and Zwingling and all these theologians that 500 years ago began to, to, to bring these biblical doctrines to the church, the, the hierarchy in the Roman Catholic Church got together to respond to the reformers. And they got together in these conferences or councils over a series of years. Between the years 1545 and 1563, they met together in a town in Germany, Italy, I can't remember where it is, but it was the town called Trenton. And so this became known as the Council of Trent. It's very unfortunate naming of, of this particular council, okay? So they met to respond to the reformers. And in one of these councils, this is what they said in response to Luther and this doctrine of grace alone. If anyone says that the sacraments of the new law were not all instituted by Jesus Christ, our Lord, or they are more or less than seven, to wit, baptism, confirmation, the Eucharist, penance, extreme unction, order, and matrimony, or even that any one of these seven is not truly and properly a sacrament, let him be anathema. Now, you have to understand the word of anathema. That was very strong language. 
It's almost like a cuss word. It means let him be damned. Let him go to hell. You're go the official position of the Catholic Church is you are going to hell if you think that grace comes apart from the exercise of these seven sacraments in the church. You say, surely that, that they, no, they wouldn't say that. They went on. In the Council of Trent, Canon 4 says this, if anyone says that the sacraments of the new law are not necessary unto salvation, but superfluous, and that without them, or without the desire thereof, men obtain of God through faith alone the grace of justification, let him be anathema. If you believe that justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, let him be anathema. They're saying the way you obtain grace is through the exercise of the seven sacraments. Now, at the Council of Trent, what happened, first of all, is they codified the seven sacraments. In other words, they added five to the biblical teaching of the two that we find in Scripture. We find baptism and communion, or the, we, sometimes we call it the Lord's Supper. And they use the word the Eucharist to describe that. Um, they teach that baptism is the way that grace is infused into the soul of a human being. Pouring water over an infant's head somehow infuses grace into that little baby. And then as he grows up, he can learn some things and he can be confirmed that the, that the grace took at baptism, that's confirmation. And then the Eucharist, that's what happens at the mass. And it is said that the priest performs a miracle and transforms the wafer into the physical body of Christ and the juice into the physical blood of Christ so that Christ is actually present in the mass and Christ is re-crucified every time this takes place. And then there's penance, that's confession. You go into the confessional booth with the priest. I, I saw a picture on Twitter yesterday that um, outside of Notre Dame Stadium yesterday, before or after the game, you could step into a little tent and you could do your confession right there. So if you happen to sin in the third quarter, you, and on the way out, you know, you could step in there and be absolved from the sin by the priest that was in there. And then the, the anointing of the sick, or you've heard of the last rites when someone is dying, that the priest would come and deliver the last rites. And the holy orders, that's just the, recognizing the hierarchy of the priesthood and, and different men that would go through seminary and, and be ordained to the hierarchy of the church. And then matrimony, that's marriage, but you gotta be married, sanctioned in and around the Catholic church. Now, if you do those seven things, and through those seven things, not six, seven, then you might get a little grace. But you never can know and you, you, you might sin a mortal sin and you have to go back and do some other special things to get. We believe that salvation is by grace alone and there's nothing you can do to merit it or obtain it. It is obtained by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. When we say and we read here 
in Romans chapter five that it says the, tr- the free gift is not like the trespass. What we're saying is the trespass was an act of man, but the free gift is an act of God. The trespass cost us our lives. The free gift cost Jesus his life. The trespass was an act of my free will. The free gift was an act of God's free will. And so we understand that Christ alone has done everything necessary to secure everything I need to be justified. Finally, grace alone reigns over the penalty and the power of sin. Look here in verse 17. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. This word reign is so essential to understanding what grace does in my life. Grace reigns over the penalty of my sin. That means that I am one day going to be set free permanently from the presence of sin, but the penalty of sin has been absorbed by Christ through one act. Do you remember how we saw that in the scripture? That one act was what Christ did on the cross where he absorbed the penalty of sin And through that one act, the many will be made righteous. The penalty will be removed. And I want you to see what it says in verse 17. Grace is something to be received. It's not something to be learned about. It's not something to be studied. It's not something to be infused into you by a priest or a baptism. It is simply to be received. You have to lay down all of your religious baggage. You have to set aside all of your self-righteousness. You have to reject every attempt to save yourself. And you come empty-handed and say, I got nothing but sin. And it's into that life that God loves to pour his grace to forgive sin and to give you new life. Have you received grace? Or has it just been something that's kind of been tried to inject into you by somebody else? And yes, I'm telling you, it's an act of your will. You say, wait a minute, you're confusing me. You said my, I don't, it's God's will, my will. It's like, do you understand? If you have a desire To receive God's grace, it is because God's grace has already been acting on you. And so come, you're an object of God's grace. And now to receive that God's grace, some of you would say, well, I don't, I just don't, I just don't really sense the need for, for that kind of activity. It's kind of embarrassing to admit you need grace because I've done a really good job not to sin very much. And that's true. I'm looking into the faces of the best people in Michiana. I am. You, you came to church this morning. And I'm telling the church people, you need grace. 
I am telling the good people, you are not good enough. And if you won't believe that, you will die apart from God's grace. And these good people will spend an eternity in hell. And your sin is the sin of self-righteousness that believes you don't need grace. There is nobody in here that is so good that you don't need God's grace. And here's the second truth. There's nobody in here so bad that you can't receive God's grace. Some of you are sitting here like, oh, I'm not like those good people. He just said, I was like, you know, I'm one of the worst people in Michiana. You just don't know. I know some of you are out there. I hear some of your stories after you get baptized because you, then you like drop it all. Like, man, let me tell you what it was like living without Christ. It was bad. And like, it's just, it's in, but you're a subject of grace. It's like, I don't care anymore because God has delivered me from the reign of that penalty and the power of that sin. So if you're in here and you are so embarrassed and so ashamed of what you have done, rejecting and ignoring Christ all of your life, my invitation to you is the same as it was to the good people. Lay down the baggage of your sin and come empty-handed before a gracious God and he will deliver you by his grace from the reign over the penalty and the power of sin. Am I making grace sound amazing to you? I hope so. If I'm doing a good job, I hope it sounds more amazing than it did when we started. Now listen, there's one more thing we have to think about before we finish. Because some of you are in here and you're so twisted, what you have heard me say is that grace covers all my sin. And so that's the best news I've ever heard because I really love to sin. I've got a lot of sin planned this week. And what you're telling me is I can go out this week and sin all I want to and God covers it all by his grace. Woohoo! Let's go sin. Some of you, you're so twisted you're thinking that. Do you know why I know you're thinking that? Because Paul knew you were thinking that. And that's why he didn't stop at the end of chapter 5. He had to get into two more verses in chapter 6, and he said this. He says in chapter 6, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He knew how twisted some of you were. And he answers his own question, and like, by no means, you twisted person. How could you be thinking that you could go out and sin after I made grace sound so amazing? Grace doesn't just deliver you from the penalty of sin. Grace delivers you from the power of sin. If you've been made a subject of God's grace, you'll never want to be enslaved again to your sin. Grace gives you the ability and the power to say no to sin. It is by God's grace that I stand in righteousness. I live out the life of righteousness in my daily actions and my choices every day. How can you know that you've been made a subject of grace? What's your attitude towards sin? 
It's not that you want your sin to abound, it's that you want your sin to diminish because you're so humbled and so grateful that God would save a sinner like you by grace alone. I want you to stand up with me. Let's respond to this truth. Have you ever seen yourself as totally incapable of attracting God's favor? Have you ever understood the depths of your bondage to sin apart from God's grace? And some of you, you you learned that truth in Sunday school or vacation Bible school years ago, but you've never made the connection of God's grace in your life every day to give you the power to overcome the reign of sin in your life. Grace is so amazing. It must be received and welcomed and exercised. Let's sing in response to this amazing grace.